Coming up on Leading Edge. In lots of data warehouses, they will have birthdays for pieces of equipment. These robots have names. These are types of human events that help create attachment. And that's one of the ways that the transition is going to happen. This is Leading Edge, a Henley Business School podcast. Welcome to Leading Edge, a new podcast from Henley Business School. I'm Thomas Mason, and in this series, we'll be equipping you with the latest tools and management thinking to thrive in the workplace of 2030 and beyond. We'll be tackling topics as varied as gig leadership or taking turns at the tiller, how to improvise when there is no plan, why CEOs are still not listening properly to their boards, why diversity is not only skin deep, and how to keep staff engaged at work. But let's jump right into today's episode. This is titled, My Boss is a Robot, Help. And to help prepare us for that slightly scary vision of the near future, I'm joined by Ben Laker. He's a professor of leadership at Henley Business School. Now, Ben, welcome. You've picked up on a prediction by the World Economic Forum that says the workplace is set to become half human, half digital by the middle of the decade. What's that all about? Well, I don't think really we should be that surprised because at the moment, 30% or at least 30% of tasks completed in the world are actually done by robots already. And this is simply just a progression on that. So by 2025, just five years time, we expect at least 40%. So that's an enormous shift. And of course, then by the end of the decade, that shift will continue and then we'll be at a 50-50 split. But for us at the moment, people are starting to look at that shift 60%, 40%, which will happen by 2025. And a lot of people are very scared. So we're going to look at what happens if a robot is your boss. But it's not that that's the sort of the end point, perhaps. But on the way, it's more and more technology involved in the workplace. Absolutely. And for many of us, we have views of Terminator and Matrix. And we have all these weird and wonderful and highly anxious thoughts about the future of the workplace, particularly with robotics and technology, but actually most of our days are already supported by technology. And we have become very used to that. So if you think about apps or mobile phones, whether you are banking or if I take my family to a restaurant like McDonald's, when you are purchasing and you are making an order, you're touching a screen, not a person. That's a robot. So the robot is actually taking my order for a Big Mac. So the the robot is a tool there, but he's not our boss. We're the boss, we're the customer. Yes, in that instance. But if you start to think about how people are already line managed or performance managed, much of the data points that will go into the inferences about whether someone is high performing, medium or low performing, that is robotics. And it's sometimes called analytics so that it doesn't offend people and make people particularly worried. But that's what's essentially going on. You are making management decisions around the performance of people based on information given to you by robotics. Right. And at the moment, at least, then there is, we would hope, a a human assessing that data. So, so it, it, we're we're kind of leading leading the change. Is that do you think over time the AI is going to get so good that it no longer requires that sense check and the the, the robot can decide if we've had a good quarter or a good year as an employee? Well, I think there's certainly an assumption there that having a humanoid type line manager is better, and right. a lot of statistics actually suggest that 
there are people in the world who would prefer to be managed by robots than humanoids. So 89% in India, very high. 88% in China, 83% Singapore, 78% Brazil, and 57% in the US, so significantly less. And I think one of the reasons for this is because in more developed nations, we have grown up with more humanoid-type management right. since uh, the Industrial Revolution. So we've become accustomed to much more types of emotional leadership and starting to think about diversity and culture and inclusivity and all of these human-centric philosophies. Whereas you think about the economies of India and China, which the explosion in the few decades past have been totally reliant upon technology, then you see that their feelings and their emotional state towards technological advancement is quite different. So if I'm one of the 57%, let's say, in the United States, I might have thought in the past, well, I'm getting a bit fed up with these performance appraisals because my boss, he just, I, I'm always overlooked for promotion. You know, he doesn't see all the, the hidden things I do for this company, all the hours I put in. He, you know, I, I, I've had enough of, of him or her. So in that case, I would rather have my appraisal done by a robot. So can you, in some cases, can you see... It being on our side, this technology, against a bad boss. I do. I think for many people, there will be fears and anxieties, and that's natural because it's change, and lots of people don't particularly like change. But if you start to think about the purpose of the technology is to be agnostic, it's to try and ensure that the best decisions are made and therefore the best and fairest outcomes are achieved. That's nothing to fear. Oh, that's nothing to fear. When someone says that, I always think there probably is something to fear. But um, uh, let's go back then to to, the, to our title, and you can tell us what there is to fear about that. So it is, my boss is a robot, help. What survival tips can you give to me as an employee of the future? Slightly concerns that, that my boss is a machine of some kind. Well, I think many people would already think their bosses are machines. Oh, right, is he speaking from past <laughs> Uh, I've certainly been led by uh, a few machines in my time. But thinking about an actual technological piece of equipment as a line manager, this is happening. This is happening particularly within data analytics world. This is happening within machine learning world. And what's quite interesting in those examples is the way to bring in technology to help transition from people being traditionally managed and collaborating with humans to robots, they say that you need to humanise the technology. Nice. You need to create an emotional feeling and attachment that you would have had in the past because that's what people are missing. It's the attachment. They feel as though they cannot have a connection or connectivity with technology. And that's what they're missing. So if you can create that. So, for example, in lots of data warehouses, they will have birthdays right. for pieces of equipment where these pieces of equipment are then split out to create additional pieces of technological advancement. They will have baby showers. These robots have names. Their birthdays are celebrated. These are types of human events that help create attachment. And that is having enormous success. And that's one of the ways that the transition that we said earlier from World Economic Forum, that 
to the 40% to 50% to that tipping point, that's how it's going to happen. So those names, putting a, a human face on robot technology, I mean, we've certainly seen that in the consumer world, haven't we? Without sort of setting off all the smart speakers yes. in, in our list at home, we've got the, we've got the series, haven't yes, we? we? We've got the Googles, we've got the, the Amazon uh, uh, Alexas, I think they're called, aren't they? We, you know, maybe that will set people's smart speakers off. But we, we, we're becoming really quite comfortable with that kind of technology in our home, aren't we? They're always listening to us. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Certainly, if you do a Google search, Google, are you listening to me? You will have a very interesting amount of responses. And if you start to think about conversations that may happen in the workplace or at home, leading to the start of personalised advertisements that you will then see on social media. The proponents of technology will argue that that is helping because it's starting to personalise and augment the world in which you live. So, for example, if you were to access a web, web page and I would access the same web page through our browsers, we would see different things because those advertisements are tailored to each of us. Right. And the argument in four is to suggest that this is better customer service because I am actually now delivering to you something highly personalised, tailored, which will help bring you closer to the purchases that you want to make. But of course, the against argument here is that it's an invasion of privacy. Yes, and I, I suppose if you take that and, and plant that in the workplace, how far does this go if we've got employers who perhaps are not just interested in our internet browsing at work uh, and, our, and if we clock in and clock out on time effectively, automatically with our passes or whatever these days, but they also start taking interest in what we do in our private lives, how many hours sleep we get if we went out drinking alcohol at the weekends um, how, 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 you know maybe they ask us to wear some kind of wristband as we as we sleep how far do you think we should welcome employers into that world well it's a really good question and lots of people will give very different answers and seemingly different types of people are more open and willing to give their data away and we've seen recently with publications of things like the great hack what data has been used for and actually where this data has come from, and you start to think back to every email that you've clicked on and every, you never read the small print, yep, fine, fine, and, and yeah, the data is being sense. harvested to create huge amounts of insight into oneself, but then also as a, as a society. And of course, there needs to be great control of that as an output because the sheer amount of responsibility and power that comes with data is enormous. And I do not think the world yet quite understands what that will look like in the future or certainly what it has created with the internet. I don't quite think anyone could even tell you what the internet is in its philosophical self right now because it's always morphing and changing into something different. And of course, we are in the midst of an industrial revolution. That's why the pace of change feels so significant. And it is similar if you were to go back hundreds of years to people in Victorian Britain who were experiencing that type of industrial revolution. These great big factories with enormous chimneys and black smoke coming out of them. You couldn't see the sun. The entire ecosystem was changing. People now coming together to live together in very small houses in these streets near the factories. So the entire world changed very, very quickly. And the 
emphasis on production and manufacturing、mm. and output, and you start to mechanize so much. And remember, the world before that point was highly agricultural, so it's very different. And we are experiencing similar things, except we don't have these big smog-filled factories. Well, not not in the Western world. I mean, if you go to China, you've got a lot of smog. Sometimes the air quality is not not so good. So sometimes we've we we live in a little bit of a bubble, and there are, these things are happening somewhere, aren't they? Production is always happening, but I think the main difference between Production in the、uh, industrial revolution compared to now is this is much more driven by data because, of course, data hundreds of years ago would look very different than it does now. So, in that industrial revolution, you have humans' gut instinct driving strategy and decision making, whereas now decision making and strategy that's driven by data. Sure, and. As you say, different ways of different inputs, but the outputs we still measure, don't we? We have targets in the workplace. We have production quotas.、Yeah. If you're in that sort of business,、um, could you tell me a bit about some of the companies that are gamifying the workplace? If you like, I'm thinking about the Amazon warehouses, where people working in those warehouses have to fill certain challenges, getting the pack, getting the items in a package in a certain amount of time. The, the delivery drivers, you've got a certain quota if they want to. Make the equivalent of the national living wage. How do we deal with that sort of gamification in the workplace? Gamification in the workplace is happening all the time. It's not just big tech firms. You see it also with intranets and closed internet systems, and in say offices where you will have message boards where people can post and like comments and share comments, and that's happening within the internal ecosystem. But essentially, it's like social media but internal,、mm. and people will have their own. Profiles, and they're talking about their likes and dislikes. So it's quite odd in a sense because you are essentially recreating the Facebook platform, but within a workspace. But to create the same feeling of fun, that's the key thing. Because from the executive level, if you are able to create a sense of fun, more so relative than before, right? The belief is that people work harder. Great. So, so who, which workplaces do you think having the most fun? Any companies in mind? I think lots of people would would like to assume that the work they do is fun. There will be the cliche examples. There will be Googles, and you could talk about you know how fun would it be to have a slide in the workplace? I certainly would love that. Although maybe you get bored of the slide, I'm not quite sure. But but Amazon again. What's quite interesting with that example? You think about one of the most profitable organisations in the world, and some people will say that Amazon is highly top down. Very control, quite a difficult, challenging place to work, but of course that is wrapped up in the beacon technology that you've that you've talked about with the gamification and the targets. I've wrote a piece recently in Forbes about platform leadership, Amazon being one example, but there are other organisations. You think about Uber. Uber will operate a a similar game style system to Amazon. How many? Rides can you collect within a certain period of time, and then internally they will then rank themselves. Yeah. And you think about then the ranking score of said driver, and what's quite interesting there as a platform example, you as a user are also contributing to the data because of course you yourself can be ranked by、yes. the driver, and you will rank the driver in return. So there is that peer-to-peer -peer relationship on the platform. So you are engaged also in the gamification. 
Indeed, and that, that is perhaps where you start to see some of the sinister sides when this technology is taken to its limits. So, I mean, we've got things like credit ratings here in the UK, but if you go over to China now, they've got this whole system of social credit rating and depending on how good a citizen you are when doing things like having a shared cab um you might you might find yourself you can't you can't rent a flat you can't take a flight so so where where do we draw the line i think there's certainly a question likely for government who will need to have persons right at the very center of this advancement at what point do we think that infringement has been reached But of course, you have different cultures and different societies and reaching a global consensus, I do not think will ever happen because culturally we are very different. And the premise of what constitutes as human rights may change over time, because, for example, at some point you might think access to the Internet is a defined human right. It's absolutely fundamental, as fundamental as water. I need access because nothing can happen without it. So there will be inclusions to these types of considerations in the future. Yeah, yes, indeed. And and what about then the transparency implications of all this? What happens if you disagree with your rating, either as a customer or as an employee at work? Well, to some extent, you could argue it's very similar to how you might disagree now the major difference is now you can find out what it is before you apply for the mortgage, whereas traditionally you would apply and be rejected and you may not know what happened. And then you have to go and search and find out and start to think, hang on, I have a CCJ against my name. Where's that come from? So the argument in four is to say, well, now you know what it is before you apply and you can work on that. And the greater transparency there is, the greater for decisions to be made that are fairer. And more open. Right. And I'm one of these employees. I'm having this uh, appraisal coming up against my name. Um, What sort of attitudes and performances do I have to have as an an employee to to prosper under this system? How can you help me? Well, I think that anything with regard to appraisals and performance management, you should know before you're walking into that room what will be discussed. And I think this is not necessarily a discussion about how technology will change that performance management system. But performance management in itself is an outdated philosophy. I prefer the term performance achievement. Performance achievement is being used throughout the world and you see this a lot within agile cultures where we throw out hierarchical top-down, which has come from the last industrial revolution, to a more matrix style, sprint style collaboration where you work in projects, in huddles with people for short periods of time to reach a goal. Once the goal is reached, you'll then move on to the next project and then the next one. So all the time, everything you're doing, it's not a job description. You're looking at outputs. So it's very clear about what you are achieving and that's your performance. So of course, you don't really need an appraisal at the end of the year because you're measured on the ability to complete the sprints. So I can go in there clutching this, look, well, I did actually tick all these boxes because here it is in black and white. Well, I think the age of a job description is also dying because once it's written down, it's out of date. And we don't necessarily want people to just 
repeat the same job, and you could look at a job mm. description, this is what I do. If you are repeating your job year in and year out, you won't have a job because these are the types of people who operate tasks that are repetitive and therefore they will be automated. You want the types of people who can't actually tell you what they're going to be doing in six, nine months because that project hasn't arisen yet. But the people possess the types of skills and talents that means they will be able to thrive in the uncertainty. That brings me on to the next part of this discussion then, Ben, which is thinking, who is going to thrive in this new world? Is it the people who are particularly, let's say, particularly technically minded? They've got good skills, they get the internet, they can even do a bit of programming. Um, or, or is it more people who are perhaps a bit more resilient and just embrace change? I would come down on the latter because I think anyone who possesses an ability to change possesses a survival instinct. And the world will always change. And we use the VUCA acronym, the volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous. And essentially, that acronym, that philosophy describes a world in which you do not know what is coming around the corner. So there's no point in trying to predict, but rather possess an ability and agility that whatever comes around the corner, you deal with it. And you believe then that resilience is something we should train rather than a course on how to advanced advanced Microsoft Excel training. A resilience training would be more I, useful. I think it's all about resilience and you will often hear this term grit as well in the States. The ability to bounce back and continuously strive forward regardless of the circumstance. And if that means acquiring some type of coding training or a new app or a new device, then that's what comes with the territory. But once that device becomes obsolete, you're not afraid to throw it away. And that's where some people who at the moment are very au fair with technology and they're very aptitude on certain types of codings, when they are made obsolete and new ones come into play, they will struggle to make that transition. And even though, as you say, technologies change and move on, you learn, you master one thing and there's a, there's a hot new thing, don't these sorts of shifts favour younger people in the sense that their 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 knowledge is more current right now and they're, they're, they're better at navigating change? I wouldn't necessarily say so. And I think the advantage that young people have is that they have less legacy. And I mean legacy in the terms of they can remember less piece of technology. So if you think the older you become, the more accustomed you have been to certain types of technology and therefore the more times you've had to change. Right. Young people haven't had to change yet, on the whole. So once the next technological shift comes, then you start to see it's difficult. So for an older generation who have maybe had to change significantly four or five or six times, they're the resilient ones because they've gone through it multiple times. Great. So I'm applying for a job. Um, in the job description, it maybe it mentions that I should be a resilient, resourceful individual, something like that. Um, how do I demonstrate that I'm the resilient person and how are you going to assess me for it? So it is possible to assess and we do this through psychometric testing. And there's a lot of psychometrics out there. There's a lot of people who can claim to do this. Ultimately, you start to look at some scenarios of where you may have demonstrated resilience previously. But at a scientific level, you're looking at a number of variables. So you start to look at your self-efficacy and you start to think about 
your self-worth as a person. And typically the higher you have, the more that one would expect to see resilience. Things like your composure, your ability to understand and act on prompts and physical signals and tenacity. That's a big one mm. uh, because that def demonstrates that you've got that perseverance. So you might be able to, within an interview setting, give them a challenge that they haven't prepared for. Let's see how you cope under pressure. And of course, the pressure of time, then that will, that will really show. Things like your collaboration. For me, this is really key because in times of difficulty, you tend to find that people will either continue to do what they have been doing. So that's the, in essence, the work harder yes. premise that we hear. Or in times of difficulty, they will start to think about how can one try something different? And that's that work smarter premise. And of course, that to some people is a, is a risk. Because if you think about if you are, say, essay writing, what a terrible task that is. But let's imagine you have loads of deadlines that come in and you think, I just need to write faster. I need to just continuously doing the same thing over and over again. Yes. But the deadlines are mounting. Now, the risk is I need to do something completely different here. Completely change my writing style, maybe use a different format, maybe do some prioritization. That's the difference between working hard, working smart. And it's not to say that one is better than the other. And this is where much thinking and much research is wrong. It's about finding the balance. It's about knowing situationally when to dig in and work hard, but then equally when to, to choose something different and, in essence, be smarter. And are there some people who are just not going to get this? You know, they come into work. Some people are excited. They're ready for the day. They're seizing the next initiative, the next software. They've got to get trained up on and work. Some think, oh, my goodness, you say I've done this before and it was bad enough the last time around. You know, who's going to lose that? Who are the losers in your brave new world? The losers will be people who, of course, are in a position where their jobs will be replaced by augmentation. And that really is people who either are unable to demonstrate high skills as a dependency, so you thinking, cognitive, creativity, or people at the complete other end of the spectrum who are very low skilled but require dexterity. So there will be some cleaning jobs which become highly in demand because of this dexterity required of human fingers that robots will just not be able to right. do. But if you sit in the middle, then you'll be jobless. Yes, and I think you've talked about resilience and readiness, and the two kind of going hand in hand. Yeah, and the main equip of resilience is that one will definitely need to retrain and upskill and not be afraid about doing something different. Now, one question I have... You know, you seem to like your technology. You're sitting there with your tablet in front of you. But how do you switch off in this brave new world? What's your downtime? Can you can the machine be turned off? I think you'd like to think so. Although sitting in a cold, dark room with nothing to consume, with no technological device to connect one to anyone else, I'm not sure I would like that particular type of world. But I'm sure there will be people out there that, that, that might. Now, you could argue perhaps on a, a nice summer's day, one would like to sit in the garden. But I like to take photos in the garden. But of course, I need a camera to do that. And my camera's in my phone. So to some extent, I don't think it's either or. 
this whole switching off. It doesn't、mm. need to be to an extreme level. But I think absolutely there are times where on my phone I will switch it to do not disturb. Yeah. And most of the world, other than three people, will be able to then access. For me, that works. But it's about finding everybody's balance, and it will be different to some people. For example, some people like to switch off by binging Netflix. Well, you're not actually switching off, then, are you? I think we might both agree on that one.、Um, I think what you're saying there then is that the, the people who are going to do really well at this are people who actually have self-control over the technology. They can perhaps partially switch it off, but they've developed the discipline not to need to look at their phone every five seconds. They're, you know, they're 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 in charge of the machine, or the other way round. And maybe your dystopian vision, at one level, it talks about the robot being a boss and the human being the kind of subject employee. Isn't there? There's a bit of a middle ground, is there, with AI, with, with augmented technology? You know, we walk down a road in the future, we might be wearing glasses or something to tell us more about our situation around us. Can you can you see that being an alternative vision of the future? I don't think it'd be an alternative. I think it is the vision of the future, and what we're describing there is beacon technology. You see this a lot at the moment. So, for example, I have the Ring app at home, so the Ring doorbell, and if a person steps onto the front pathway, there is a beacon. It will then trigger a lovely sounding wind chime that goes right through the house. I now know, okay, there is someone on the property, on the front garden. The next three steps, I know they'll be at the front door. So just small things like that, we then start to recognise and we start to change our habits. Now, within the world of work, things like driverless cars, we're becoming much more accustomed to those types of technologies. But think now, how much time will be freed up if nobody is driving, and we enter into these capsules that take us from point A to point B? We're able to read a newspaper. We're able to have communications, speak with friends, colleagues, perhaps even hold meetings. So, again, people will use this term dystopian as a view of the world, but the other side of it is it looks quite promising. Well, this is the dream, isn't it? That we're all going to have all this free time because technology will have saved us. One thing I hope, Ben, it's going to free us up to do is to have a dream dinner party. And we've asked you about this. We've asked you to think about the three people, alive or dead, the three business people you'd invite to a dinner party, and why. I, I'm assuming you, I'm going to give you the Friday off work because you've, you know, you've played well with the machine. You're very kind. Who's coming along? I think we have to invite Jeff Bezos. We've talked a lot about Amazon. So he's the founder and CEO of Amazon. I think, with regard to his vision of Amazon, you've got to remember this started out as a bookshop. But he's created an entire platform which has revolutionised the way that we live, perhaps more so than even Facebook, which is an enormous claim. But if you start to think about where Amazon is going and where it's been, and the acquisitions that they keep making, new ventures, how soon will it be before? Packages that are delivered to our homes are via drone. Not long. This is an enormous step into the future. So, I would love to invite Jeff and just to start asking him what's next, what's coming down the track. What's interesting about Amazon is almost 
there are people at the end of a phone. It's possible to phone Amazon, but Jeff Bezos family said that he considers that to be a failure. If his website has failed to the point where you have to, you can't work out the solution online, then the human is a last resort, really. And his view on all of this, ultimately, Amazon is a logistics company. It's the world's biggest logistics company, and I think in our lifetime it will become the world's only logistics company, the way that it's going. We have uh, Rita Trahan, who's at Henley. She's part of the exec team, and her husband actually works with Jeff Bezos. Right. He was there at the beginning. He's in charge of Amazon Web Services. He has some really interesting insights on Jeff as a person, constantly striving for radical change. Very similar to Steve Jobs, one would argue. But of course, on paper, Apple seems some very organic, perhaps cleaner, more crisper as a brand compared to Amazon because it's essentially a logistics company. But both of them have totally revolutionised the world. And we can't forget that. So even though you've had all Friday to cook, we, maybe if we have Jeff, if we can arrange a drone perhaps to deliver the, the, well, the, the dinner. Well, yeah. Save ourselves a bit more time. Yes. Just have, have more of a preamble with some nice drinks. Uh, what, what about guest number two then, Pen? I would invite Cheryl Sandberg. She's Chief Operating Officer at Facebook and also part of the Lean In revolution. We've talked a lot about Facebook and social media in this conversation. But again, I'd like to really understand what's next for Facebook because there's a lot of people who say some very bad things about Facebook and social media. And, of course, there are other social medias coming online, things like Instagram. Brought up by Facebook. And so what do you mean by Lean In, sorry? So Lean In, title of her book and her organisation with regard to women in the workplace and certainly positions in leadership, how to empower them and how for other people in the workplace to ensure that women and women in leadership is risen rightfully to the absolute pinnacle of management thinking. So we're going for a bit of a, a quite a techie uh, dinner party, and I think maybe your third guest along similar lines. It is. You've guessed quite right. Um, I would like to invite Tim Cook. Now, a lot of people... CEO of Apple. CEO of Apple, uh, certainly not... In, to some people, was interesting as as the person he replaced. But I think Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs. We did say you could have a dead person at this dinner party. For me, Tim Cook is a really interesting person because, from a leadership perspective, how does one follow arguably the greatest mind of all time? That's a real challenge. And you talk about resilience, right? How does one believe in themselves to take? the organisation founded by Steve Jobs and to start to make decisions and not question in his mind what would Steve have done. And that, yeah, I think that was what Steve Jobs himself said he hoped his successor would, yes. would be able to do. Yes, and, and Tim Cook for a long time worked very closely with Jobs and it was known for some time internally that he would be the person to take the organisation on. But of course the concern and the worry from many was that he's a very boring person relative to Steve Jobs how would he be able to take that criticism? And it seems that he's taken it absolutely fine and Apple is all the better for it. So we've we've got, sitting around a table, we've got Tim Cook, we've got Jeff Bezos, Cheryl Sandberg. What, what are we going to learn? What's the, what, are they, what are the conversations going to be? Well, I'm hoping that uh, by far we're not the smartest people in the room, which I think 
given these guests, I think we can absolutely say that's a certainty. So we're going to learn so much from these people, how they think, how they interact with technology, why they seemingly are not afraid of advancement of technologies where many of us are. They seemingly want to engage and use technology for societal good and societal gain. And I would really like to ask them the future of work and the future of business. They seem to have worked this out because they are steamrolling into the future. So what will it mean for us? And perhaps what's going to be most important in the future from their perspective? And what will be on the menu? Well, it's a drone menu, isn't it? So uh, something uh, burger and chips, I think. Right, well, uh, you know, I'm sure they'd be delighted. You know, you I'm, get them I'm all sure this way. I'm sure they would. So, you know, round to your house and you, you give them burger. You should probably have said Donald Trump. I think he'd have, he'd have enjoyed that that particular yeah, I've heard menu so. item. He famously enjoys I, I, it. I don't reason. think you can go wrong. You can't go wrong with that. Fair enough. Well, that sounds like it's going to be a stimulating dinner party. Um, we've we've learned partially about your vision of the future and indeed how to make the best of it uh, with what's going to happen with the rise of robots in the workplace. But I believe you've got one other prediction. Um, by 2030, what will be the biggest change to the way we do business and why? I think the style of management or, ma- or leadership in its current form will be becoming obsolete and it will perhaps not by 2030 but certainly by 2050 2060 be completely redundant because one will not need leadership and i think when people hear this they think what on earth is he talking about but you have to decouple what we mean by leadership and management they're not the same thing and leadership is about inspiring and motivating and making executive decisions but actually with decision science one does not need leaders what you need is managers you need people to actually use data to go and make things happen and that's why we will see the rise of management and the demise of leadership well this is a slightly worrying note on which to end our leading edge podcast so give us give us a bit of hope presumably this they're still going to have to work out the direction it's not purely going to be set by the machine is it somebody's going to need to lead or collaboratively they will well uh, as a professor of leadership i'm going to be fighting for the revival of leadership in the future just to ensure that we don't become obsolete as well so but my understanding is then that you think that man everything can be done just by the data and by executing projects ultimately everything needs to be managed and that is where human interaction is going to be really important but not everything will need to be led because leading involves gut decisions which you will eradicate you won't need to have that and i think for lots of people they like the idea of leadership but management is actually what drives the economy and it's what drives the organization it's the management it's how one manages an entity so it's the processes the systems the structures to ensure things actually happen and for many people if they were to ask themselves realistically on every week they aren't really having much leadership input. It's much more about managerial input. So again, it sounds like a soundbite, the eradication of leadership, but it's not actually as shocking as one would think. So it's that old shibboleth, what gets measured gets managed. Gets managed, that's right. Well, on that note, 
Ben. We've had a lovely talk about your gut instincts, both for the future of automation in the workplace. And it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you here on the Leading Edge podcast. Thank you. Next time on Leading Edge. We have to break the mould of people taking the shortcut. And it's just easier to recruit somebody who looks like everybody else there. If you're willing, you can think about the biases that you probably didn't quite realise that you have. And what are you going to do about them? Leading Edge is a Henley Business School podcast. This episode was written and presented by Thomas Mason. Visit hly.ac slash leadingedge for more.